age of the omni-channel is having a radical effect on the size and purpose of retail space in North America. Hi everybody, I'm Bob Bowman, Editor-in-Chief of Supply Chain Brain, and this is a Supply Chain Brain Podcast. Think of the definition of omni-channel as satisfying the spoiled consumer. That's us, by the way. In our online shopping habits, we've been trained to demand what, where, and how we want products delivered to us. In response, retailers are scrambling to reconfigure their supply strategies and sales channels. And that is leading to a radical transformation of the retail and industrial landscape. On this episode, I discuss these changes with John Morris, Executive Managing Director for the Americas of Industrial, Logistics, and Retail with CBRE. We'll consider what it means to right-size traditional retail spaces, how brick-and-mortar stores are changing their look and purpose, the rise of the so-called dark store, and the future of shopping malls. Spoiler alert, it's complicated. Here is my conversation with John Morris. John Morris, welcome to the show. Thank you, Val. Thanks very much. John, what is happening in retail in North America right now? What's the single biggest change you see? We need a couple hours for that, but I would say the the single biggest change I see is the word we've heard used called omnichannel, which is really for consumers, for you and me, the expectation to get anything we want, anytime we want it delivered as soon as we want it. That certainly had been happening in retail, but unfortunately, and sort of the silver lining, I guess, fortunately, we're now going to go through a process of right-sizing retail in a way that is more consumer-driven, and the current national crisis has effectively done something to accelerate the process, I'm pretty sure. Well, that's all the stuff I want to talk to you about, definitely, but let me fixate on that word, right-sizing. What is the typical re- retail footprint look like today, and, and how is that different in terms of the actual size of a, of a retail store? Retail sizing, Bob, it won't surprise you for me to answer. That's really retailer and location-specific, but some of the big box I'll call them department store chains and and value chains with whom we've been working lately who have been almost exclusively in the 100,000 square foot format are now looking at opportunities in in the 10,000 to 15,000 square foot prototype. That is obviously dramatically different. I think some of these prototypes that come online probably in the next half year, I think they'll be surprising to people. So the average size of retail going down most broadly I would also say that we're all discovering that retail is not just a showroom, however. And I think a couple of years ago, when there had been some retail closures and people were concerned, there was this mantra that retail is dead and it's just a showroom. Mm -hmm. That is definitively not the case because, A, consumers want the experience. And once we're clear as a society around masks and vaccines and so forth, they'll want it even more. But it's also true that customers do want the opportunity to pick up, to be fulfilled, that intersection of lifestyle and product and brand and an actual delivery, that intersection more important than ever. 
and many folks will still be comfortable having that experience in a store. So sizes coming down on average, some new formats being smaller, people still though wanting to have the in-store experience and the retailers whenever possible would like to be able to deliver with that experience in that experience in that moment with product into a customer's hands. We're right-sizing that. Retailers are trying a lot of new things. I would also say more broadly, Bob, that we also do just have too many square feet of retail in this country. Our numbers are dramatic compared to, let's say, Europe, even dramatic compared to our neighbors in the north and Canada. For shopping retail, we've got 23 to 25 square feet for each of us, each per capita. Canada's number is something like 15. We have been over-retailed in general, much of the over-retailing in suburbia, and that right-sizing had begun a couple of years ago. But as circle back to what we first talked about, I think some of that also being uh, accelerated by COVID-19. Interesting you should point out that it did start a couple of years ago because we were starting to see a few years back, for instance, Target was starting to open up smaller footprint stores in more urban centers. And then Amazon comes along, the so-called everything store, and opens up very small actual brick-and-mortar stores. So not a brand new trend, but definitely one accelerated by current conditions, right? Yeah, absolutely right. And we've had a couple of years before all of this where there had been 10, 15, even one year, 18,000 closures in a year as part of the right-sizing exercise. Some of those from bankruptcies, but many of those from repositioning. And you're right, some wonderful traditional retail formats are now trying some new things and some newer brands, e-commerce brands, what are called digitally native brands, which are businesses that began only online let's say something like a Warby Parker or an Allbirds, now also going to a store format because it just simply gives them exposure to more people. So right-sizing process, I think to our point, just accelerated a little bit by what's unfortunately happening today. But is the writing on the wall for the mall? Because on one hand, the stores that were the anchor stores for those malls, a lot of them are in trouble, if not already gone. And then secondly, the whole mall experience seems to be kind of going away. Do you think that shopping malls are going to one day be a thing of the past? I don't know, but I certainly have some thoughts around it. Not all of them, I guess, encouraging for malls. I think department stores, some underperforming malls, lifestyle power centers are vulnerable. Whether in a mall or not in a mall, I think retail does start to densify. And so by definition, a mall is not a dense retail environment. That's what consumers were looking for maybe in a prior decade or generation. But retail does begin to densify. Some of the space made available by densification becomes other things. Lifestyle experience, maybe multifamily, maybe even industrial. I think malls at a minimum are going to need to densify their space, take better advantage of their space. And I do think some of that Densification does, by definition, throw risk at the mall. Again, every market different, and there are some great malls in this country, some that you and I may have even been at in the last week that will continue to do well, but but even the successful malls will have to do more to densify their space. Major markets like L.A., Chicago, New York City, Dallas, Atlanta, Houston may have more than, let's say, three relevant malls, but maybe markets like Charleston, Tulsa, Tucson will probably have three or less relevant malls. So it's that interaction of densification, total numbers of people, spaces between malls. But the population in aggregate, to really get back straightforward to your question, Bob, there will be fewer malls end of the day.
Now, one thing we've been hearing a lot lately is the idea that consumer purchasing habits will be changed permanently by the pandemic, by the lockdown, by sheltering in place, that a lot of people who were not previously doing a lot of shopping online have been forced to do so in this situation and now discover that they really like it. And going forward, that's going to be a permanent thing. On the other hand, you have this idea that people have been locked in for so long that they're dying to get out back into, a, into stores just because of the experience of being shut up for so long. Those seem like contradictory things, or maybe they're both true. What do you think about the future of consuming behavior as a result of this situation? Those are great data points. I think they're both true. Think about the percent of retail that was purchased online in 2010, and this is inclusive of everything, right? Cars, gasoline, etc., the percent of retail purchase online 10 years ago was 5%. It doubled in 10 years to 10%. Remember, that's inclusive of everything. Here, recently measured at the end of June, it was 20%. Again, inclusive of everything. So in a couple of months, we doubled something that had taken 10 years to happen previously. That is significant, certainly driven by what's happening to America's shopping infrastructure today. But I think that some of it might revert. There are people for whom, yeah, they're anxious. They'd love to get back out there. I've got a couple of those in my household now. But in general, that big bump forward, I think a big part of it sticks. And I think that's part of what's going to drive the reformatting of retail, that omni-channel experience. And I think for some retailers, you might see them even have more inventory in the store because when that consumer decides to have that in-store experience, it's got to be a better one. Because the expectation also can't be that I'll only go there and look and then walk away and click. Because when I walk away and click, I may not buy from you. So you got to be sticky with the customer. You've got to offer more opportunity to shop in more channels. I do think that this accelerant to that paradigm shift, that transformation, I think a lot of it sticks. So your example was probably two extremes. One is that everyone goes back. One is that no one goes back. Mm -hmm. My easy answer is it's somewhere in the middle. A good metric of that. Bob, is, there's a category in retail called GAFO, which is measured by U.S. Census. It's general apparel, accessory, furniture, other. It's effectively what we shop for when we go shopping, let's say, to a mall. And GAFO has been approaching a third online. So I had said 10% of retail online before COVID, 20% during COVID. Of the things for which we actually physically shop, it was already a third online. I haven't seen how that has bumped during COVID. It has to be over half at this point. And I think we end up seeing some of that go back to physical retail, but I think quite a bit of that stays converted, stays online. Mm -hmm. Now, what is happening as the size of retail brick and mortar stores shrink and as the number of stores shrink and as these big anchor stores and malls go out of business, what is happening with the repurposing of that space? For instance, the conversion of a traditional brick-and-mortar store to a so-called dark store, which is entirely a fulfillment center, to the creation of these new giant million-square-feet distribution centers plop in the middle of urban centers. What kind of a transformation are we seeing there in terms of what was once retail space being turned into something else, and what is it being turned into? Great question, multidimensional answer here. I think one of the things that happened in the, let's say, 70s and 80s with mall expansion was this competition amongst the department store anchors to be an anchor and the only anchor or one or two in a particular mall. Those anchors wanted 
some exclusive privilege. They didn't want to have too many of their competing retailers in the same mall. One of the drivers of having so many malls today was that period of time where the gravity and revenue of, of a department store anchor could drive, had the power and clout to say, I need my own mall, effectively. And so you could end up in, and I'm in the far west suburbs of Chicago, there are three large malls within 10 minutes of me, and this is not a very dense environment. So I think part of the spread, part of the maybe over-retailing was this idea of the power of the anchor. Now, the anchor is still critical, but I'm sure that as malls here in suburban Chicago and other places densify and grow and add more brands, the focus will be on the portfolio of brands, the experience, and not necessarily on that anchor. So I think some mall conversion won't necessarily be all about the anchor. I, mm-hmm. I have to think part of your question was, what happens to these things? Like you say, so-called dark stores or yeah. giant urban distribution centers, is that a real thing happening to a large degree? It is happening, not yet to a large degree. Our research team is tracking 40, I think 41 or two of these conversion projects. Only a small handful have happened so far. I think three have actually happened in Ohio, and I think successfully. But there are 40 to 50 projects like that in process today. It's that needle in a haystack, though, where you have some level of disposable income and proximally located. You have available square feet. It can't be in the middle of a mall. It's got to be on the perimeter or maybe on the end cap. You can't put a warehouse in the middle of a shopping mall, but you can put it in the same property type. And I think some malls will reconfigure to allow that. And, and part of their densification will be to find something on the perimeter or exterior of the mall that can become a warehouse or an office or a restaurant or other. There just aren't that many examples yet of that conversion being successful. There is quite a bit of capital looking at those opportunities today as some retail rents, especially in suburban or near suburbs, are coming down and rents for industrial are going up and industrial rent growth has been really dramatic in the last five years. As those rental rates converge, they become a more alike number, and you can repurpose that retail rent into an industrial rent. One of the things COVID has done, it damaged some retail value, has been to open up the envelope to make some of this conversion more possible. So we've seen some of it, Bob, in the last couple of years, again, about 40 or so projects in the U.S. I think you'll see another 40 of them in the second half of the year. Because the, the rental rate differences are now, in some cases, negligible. And that pricing allows for capital conversion more easily than it did before COVID. But the theory here is that e-commerce is driving the need for speed and therefore the need for distribution centers to be closer to the customer. And in many cases, that means actually putting a big distribution center in an urban area that might have been unthinkable before. Uh, the That's one million right. square foot uh, DC going up in the Bronx, or a uh, a multi cinema being turned into distribution facility, or something like that. So I'm assuming that was a trend that was happening before COVID nineteen. Is e commerce itself driving the placement and the size and the whole strategy of DCs? Absolutely, and you're right. That's been happening for the last seven or eight years. The model in which a retailer or another CPG company would have a million square feet an hour outside Chicago, that's no longer enough. That's no longer good enough for retail today. And so what you end up with is a whole new class of property. And instead of a million footer fulfilling a store, you've got that big million 
square foot box fulfilling maybe a, a regional DC that's 10 miles outside the city and me, maybe even that distribution node refilling something pretty close to downtown Chicago. So one of the things e-commerce has driven is multiple tiers or levels to distribution. And in most cases, those are entirely new properties and property types. And that's why the industrial market has now had a run of 41 straight quarters of positive net absorption or effectively demand exceeding supply. Well, you know, it's interesting because just about everything we've talked about in these last few minutes, we we say that it's happening right now, but all this stuff was happening before as well. So is there anything, I mean, is simply the trends of today in this time of pandemic, is it simply an amplification and an acceleration of trends that were already evident before this happened? Or are there things that you were saying six months ago that have to just be completely thrown out the window because the landscape has changed so much? Wow. That's a great question. It's a tough one to answer because almost anything I could tell you is happening now had at least started, Bob, prior to February, March. Mm -hmm. The few I would say that are different or maybe just accelerated so much because of COVID that just a different paradigm. One would be curbside, curbside pickup. Instead of just figuring out where someone can park with their hazards on for five minutes, stores actually reconfiguring not just their parking lot, but their store itself. So Where is there an end cap? Where is there a lane? Where is there a module where I can actively service curbside pickup, pick the items for the customer, pick and package, finish the purchasing process, not even have them go inside to a counter and stand in line? So that that ability to make people more comfortable, maybe not having to be around others because that's what they like to do, Mm-hmm. There are some structural retail facility changes that, while they ride off a trend that was happening, which was buy online, pick up in store, maybe the notion of curbside pickup and not having to see or touch or be near anyone else and not, as scientists would say, not share the air, those are structural shifts, I think, that are really almost exclusively COVID-driven. Maybe the closest we had to that was the locker concept. Same kind of the general lo- yep. idea. But not curbside. The concept sure. or the Walmart or Target concept where you had your own parking and you went to your own counter. You'll see now some new vending kiosk kinds of concepts. And Walmart, I'm pretty sure, is testing a really interesting one today, which is a grocery concept where you place your order online, an automated kiosk. It looks sort of like several containers on top of each other is going to pick those items for you. And a little bit like a locker, Bob, you're going to go to the kiosk, enter your information and pick up your groceries. And some of that will be temperature controlled. So there can be some frozen fresh items on that menu, not just ambient or dry goods. So I think we'll see a few more automated zero contact retail opportunities coming significantly from COVID. And then another one quickly to mention We don't talk about this very much in magazines or in conversations around shopping, but the safety of the employee in the warehouse themselves, how do you give them safety and separation? It's certainly things like masks and certainly things like shields and plastic walls of separation and so forth. But I think, and I guess this was happening pre-COVID, the drive for automation or robots in the building or automated what are called pick modules, robots doing the work of people. That was already happening because labor was short in supply, labor's more well-educated, labor going towards learning economy jobs. That push towards automation is also safer for people, and I think that's something that, again, I'll say was probably on a good track before this, but also is going to increase 
significantly. So much more we could talk about, but John Morris of CBRE, you've given us a really good taste of the major trends out there that define a huge transformation in the retail and industrial landscape in North America going on right now. So thank you so much for being with us today. Really appreciate it. My pleasure, Bob. Thank you very much. That was my conversation with John Morris of CBRE, talking about the transformation of the retail landscape. We're online at www.supplychainbrain.com, where we post a new episode of this podcast for streaming or downloading every Friday. You can also read my Think Tank blog, watch thousands of videos, and access all of our other content, including the digital edition of our magazine. Look for us on Facebook and LinkedIn, and follow us on Twitter, at SCBrain. You can also download or subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts. Got any comments or suggestions on this or any episode? Email me at rbowman at supplychainbrain.com. Stay well and see you next time.